My name is Pastor Matt, and we're in part seven of our Connecting to Church series. And I really believe that the next eight weeks, and I, and I was literally just texting this to Lance um, a few moments ago, is some of the most vital and most practical parts of Ephesians as it's gonna speak most directly to our interaction and our connection to the church community and how we speak and how we respond to one another and the things we do um, and, and in how we function as a church. And that's because we're called to travel on the same road. We're all moving in the same direction and everything that we do and think and the ways that we live is all supposed to be permeated with a oneness. It's supposed to be permeated with a unity. And yet one of the most subtle and subversive spiritual attacks that happens tends to happen on a team's unity. And whether you're talking about a dating couple or a married couple or a family or a competitive sports team or different levels of government or a military unit or different employees together, those attacks happen on unity everywhere. And they don't always look like an inharmonious thing that's gonna break apart a team. But you'll see that the vision and the inspiration and the spirit of a team is weighed down. And everybody feels like they're slogging through this muck and they feel like they're wearing a heavy, wet blanket. I remember 15 years ago, I was working at a church that um, it started really great. And, uh, and, and the senior pastor and I were friends and, and, and there was stuff going on that started becoming this subtle, subversive spiritual attack that just started weighing everything down in the church that the leadership wasn't all getting along and the elders and, and the congregation was kind of, and yet we would be able to get together and we could share about the transformation that was happening in the lives of people in the church. We could get together and celebrate the things we were walk, watching God do. But even at the end of this really difficult and challenging time, I remember the senior pastor and I talking and going, man, look at all that God did during this time of disunity. How much more? How much beautiful, how much more would we have been able to celebrate if everybody was unified? And I know from experience those sweet and deep moments of unity where you're with people and you're sharing some great vision together and, and, and you have the same convictions about God and the world and you function in that unity and that oneness of purpose. And, and the deeper agreement that there is, the deeper joy and power of those moments. And I remember working in the high school ministry here at Bridgeway and about, about five years ago, there was that time where the leaders that were around me were this, these great people, not only the volunteers, but I had this smaller team that was made up of, of three guys. One of them is the now current high school pastor, Cliff Woodward. He's just rocking it on the drums here a moment ago. Brett Dans, who is uh, the, the spouse of Ashley Dans, Miss Ashley. And then also um, James Love, who was our, our worship director for high school ministry. And I remember spending time in the back left corner of our high school room in the old building on those couches and talking and dreaming and talking about the things we saw happening in the lives of students and, and dreaming about what they needed to have taught to them and what needed to happen from the leaders in their lives. And I remember even going on a retreat up to Tahoe with them where we were just spending so much joyful time together, united over one purpose and one vision and excited about where, where God was taking us. And see, unity is one of the goals and the prayers of Jesus Christ himself, that if you read John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples and everyone that would follow him that they would be one as him and the Father are one. And yet, do we ever take unity that seriously? 
And, and so we have to take a moment to talk about unity because a lot of people feel that they're more familiar with unity than they actually are. And I kind of have that, that voice from Princess Bride from Inigo Montoya where he's like, I don't, you think, I don't think you know that word means what you think it means. <laughs> and, and unity is not uniformity. The church is not this organizational franchise where the church offers the same menu and the same prices and everybody's wearing the same things or conforming to the same music style or having the same order of service. It's not about sharing common interests or hobbies or cultural background. It's not about structure or method or program or personality. Those are preferences. Those aren't values. Walking in spiritual unity does not mean that everyone is doing the same thing, but that they're all acting in one accord that we're all moving the same direction together. And so a football team is always a great example of that because you have 11 different players on the field that are all trying to do the same goal. They're trying to move the ball from where they are to where they wanna get it to the other end zone. But they all have a different role. Everybody has a different part to play. And so now we have to look at it and go, what's our one goal? What are we supposed to be doing? What's our one purpose? And that's to live as members and as citizens of the kingdom of God and live declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what you're gonna find is as we move into the second half of Ephesians, we're moving from the first part of the letter of Ephesians where it's about Christ in his church and now we're moving to the down to earth, the very needed practical pieces of the church in Christ. And so what you're gonna find is Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is gonna be like a hinge between the first three chapters and the last three chapters. It's gonna set the tone for the remainder of the letter and it's gonna provide the link with everything that's gone on before. And you're gonna see that Paul's gonna be telling us that our lifestyle has to match what we have been called to. We have to live in this unity. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter four, verses one to three. Ephesians chapter four, verses one to three. And it's a, just a really short couple sentences and I'm gonna read them here for us and then we're gonna walk through them together. Ephesians four, Chapters, or Ephesians chapter four, verses one to three. So Paul writes this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humanity, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so let me walk us right in and let me give you a few preliminary points. The first is, is that Paul's focus and his encouragement for this entire chapter is in verse three. Look at verse three again. He wants them to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. We are supposed to do our best eagerly, diligently working at this. And he'll tell us that the unity doesn't need to be created. The Lord has already created that, but it needs to be preserved. It needs to be protected. It needs to be realized. It needs to be maintained. And so Paul's giving this as instruction, but with a little bit of challenge. And so then he starts with that term, therefore. And, and, and anytime you see that in the English language, in any language, it's always a look backward. So Paul is saying, you need to look back at all the truths that he's already explored, all these realities of God's spoken word, and those are gonna be the basis of everything he's about to say, how to have the proper attitude towards unity and the proper attitude towards one another. And then Paul's gonna say he's a prisoner in the Lord. Some Bibles say for the Lord, some say of the Lord. If you look in some commentaries, they have like four or five pages on that word for, of, or the, or in. 
And, and you're like, why are they getting so caught up on that? Because of what Paul is trying to say. Because when Paul says, and I do believe he's saying a prisoner in the Lord, is he's trying to say, I am not a prisoner to Rome. I am not a prisoner to Caesar. I'm in a union. I'm in a bond with Jesus Christ. And that has led to my obedience. His life was controlled by the fact of that bond. And so he's saying, now hear and heed what I'm going to say. Imitate me. And then he's going to give them the charge. I urge you. Some Bibles say, I beseech you. Some Bibles say, I warn you. And he's giving them this urgent and personal appeal. It's not as much a begging. Some Bibles will say he's begging or he's, he's pleading for a favor. No, he's, he's actually giving an urgent and personal warning, a challenge, but with a note of authority. But he's saying, because we're family, because I'm a friend, you can hear this. You can take this challenge and it can fall into your lives. And so what's that challenge? He says, I urge y'all, because it's a plural challenge. I urge you all, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Some Bibles say what we receive. And, and anytime you see that word walk, it's always a metaphor for living, for lifestyle, taking one step at a time. It has to do with how you conduct yourself in the day-to-day and the nitty-gritty in the nitty in the gritty details, the nitty-gritty details is what I was trying to say. It, it has to do with following a fixed path that's informed and grounded. But now you're realizing that each step is transformed by the calling of God. And, and so it's this concept of living, walking along a path or along the way. And that was a very Jewish concept. They had this term in the Hebrew called derech. And it was the term for walk or way or path. And it was the idea of you're going along a way that God has set before you, that God has grounded, and others have walked on that path. And, and so in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Proverbs, and throughout the prophets, they're constantly reminding the people to follow on the walk, to follow on the path. It was their way of saying, follow the yellow brick road. <laughs> and, and, and here's the thing that's interesting is Paul's going to use that term here. He's going to use this term walk 41 times in the book of Ephesians. He's only going to use that term once in the first three chapters. In the last three chapters, 40 times he's going to talk about the way you walk, which shows you that he's trying to tell them how to take these steps in their life, how to walk them, where to walk them, why to walk them. And so that's where if you're doing the fill in the blank, you're going to see that our fill in the blank for this weekend is we all walk together because this is an aspect of us doing this together in unity. We all walk together. And yet he's going to say that we are supposed to walk worthy. It's this Greek term, axios. It's this idea of being um, suitable or worthy, but it's, it literally means to bring up the beams of the scales. So if you can almost imagine it as a, as a scale that's weighted, right? And you have all of the calling that God has given already. And Paul is saying, now allow the other side to come to balance with the calling that you already have. Your calling and all the truths of what Jesus Christ have done should not be here and your walk is down here. They should balance the beams. It should come together. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, it's like putting on matching apparel. That if you have the calling and you're wearing the calling right, that you naturally put on other things that look good with that calling and you're matching. You're not wearing stripes and polka dots together. Or brown and black used to be a big thing. Now it's popular again. It used to be a negative thing. Now it's popular. So, um, so he's saying, bring up the beams of your lifestyle. But we have to talk about what is this calling? What is this 
this calling that we've, been, we've received. And it's not a personal calling. It's not whether or not you should have been a nurse or a, or a coffee barista or you were called to ministry. This is the fact that all of us have been summoned to a special benefit, a special experience to live as saints of the church. This is what Paul has unpacked across the letter. And I just wanna give you a quick reminder of everything that Paul has already been saying about our calling. Chapter one, verses three to 14, that we are blessed, we are chosen, we are adopted, we are redeemed. He is revealing the mystery, uniting all things in Jesus to us. We've been sealed with the spirit. We've been invited to this. We've been so abundantly set up to accomplish and maintain this unity. I love what Bishop Parnell said a couple weeks ago in chapter three. He said, we have enough Holy Spirit that he is able to do what is necessary for our churches and our nation to be healed. Verse 17 of chapter one, he says, we're given wisdom and revelation to know Jesus and this calling and to know the hope to which he has called us, that Jesus is the head of the church. In chapter two, he's gonna say that we're made alive together that we have been made alive together with Jesus, that we've been saved by grace, that we've been raised and seated up with Jesus. We've been drawn near by the blood of Jesus and he has created one new person, one body in peace, that we are now fellow citizens. We are members of one household. And Paul's laying all this down, this reality and this maturity, that individual spiritual growth that is not shared is not true spiritual growth because we are supposed to do this together. We're supposed to do this connected. And even as he moves into chapter three and he starts moving into a prayer, he reminds us that we are utilizing God's power to do this and that even the spiritual powers in our world are watching how we function together. So we have a hefty list of reasons that Paul's unpacked for us. And the best part is, is we have God's presence to live distinctively in this unity. And we have to accept that challenge. We have to move forward in that. There's one scholar that says it this way. He says, we have a million dollar salvation, but a five cent response. He's saying we want that response to match up to that salvation and that calling that we have. And that's what these chapters ahead are gonna show us how to have this connection with one another in that worthy manner. But how do we do that? What distinctive qualities are gonna help us reach that spiritual goal? And that's where he tells us. With humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And these are four qualities that spring out of someone that's living in communion and connection with the spirit. That when they're bound with the spirit, this fruit pours out. This isn't somebody that's trying harder. This is somebody that's drawing nearer. And each of these involve getting rid of something. And I was talking to a few of the the ladies that do ministry around here about some ideas on on how this is exemplified. And one of the things that came up was the aspect of parenthood. And and this reality that as parents, you have to often live out these qualities, these characteristics. You have to live in humility. You have to live in gentleness. You have to live in patience. You have to bear with one another in love. And kids, you could look up at your parents and go, yeah, you better do that. These are things that often mean dying to self and seeing the needs of others greater than your own. It also comes up in any area that's a natural mentorship, whether that's a spiritual mentorship or you're a teacher or you're a coach or you're a a director or a boss or you're a coworker that trains people. Any of those environments, we naturally are mentoring people together. But these are the things he says. He says first that we need to do this with all humility. 
And, and, and humility is, is non-pride and it's non-self-centeredness. And that's really hard because in our culture, all of our life's energy is directed towards self. And you have to understand that in classical Greek, in the Greco-Roman world, humility was a negative term. No one wanted to have humility. It's only in the Christian faith that they took this Greek term, tapinos, and said, this is what we need to live by. It's this lowliness of mind. It's remembering who you were and who you are in Jesus Christ and who you are in his kingdom and program. It's this proper sense of self-awareness, of self-worth and the worth of others. Because you get a chance to see that you are important to God, but you don't need to seek that importance from other people in order to know that. That's what humility is. I like what one uh, scholar says, John Ruskin, he says, when men and women are wrapped up in themselves, they make a pretty small package. (laughs) You don't need to have all of this recognition, all of this um, respect and authority when you know who you are in God. And and some of the evidences of, of deep humility tend to come up in two phrases. One, I don't know. And two, I'm sorry that those tend to be terms that epitomize someone that's living with humility and humility prompts unity. But Paul goes, you don't just need humility, you need gentleness. Man, Paul, you're asking a lot. I already have to be humble? You have to be gentle as well and you have to read gentleness as connected with humility. Sometimes people even translate the term for gentleness as humility or meekness. And it's kind of sad because in our English language, gentleness tends to mean wimpish weakness or non-assertiveness. We look at someone that's gentle, someone that's tender, and they're soft in their actions, and they're calm, and they're sweet, and they're petting puppies, and that's not what gentleness is. Gentleness in the Bible is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's, it's somebody that has God's perspective, that it's not because I know this or that, or because I've done this or that. I'm not impressed by everything that I think I am. Instead, I'm someone that's considerate. I'm thoughtful. I'm attentive to others rather than rough. And and so it's not weakness. It's not an absence of anger. It's actually a moderation, a control. I, I like what John Piper says. He says, the person of gentleness cannot easily or quickly retaliate when he or she is wronged. They know that before God, they don't deserve anything better. And they know that if they return evil for evil, they would be saying to God, you were a fool for being patient with me and enduring my sin and returning good for evil. So a person that's gentle is not a person who has no force of character, but it's someone who's strong and able to relate to others in a way that they're not coercing or compelling them to assent to anything by force. They're guiding people with a humble, thoughtful spirit. It means not being the loudest voice because the loudest voice is not always the right voice. Only a person that's controlled by the spirit of God can truly be gentle. Angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. And when a person like that is wronged, he or she does not seek revenge, but when a wrong has been committed, he or she has the power to address the situation. And and so you're gonna see that Paul will talk about this in so many other places in 2 Timothy 2.25, in Galatians 6.1, he's gonna talk about the fact that we are called to correct one another, to go, whoa, 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 that's wrong. You shouldn't do it that, but that we're supposed to do it with the spirit of gentleness. 
I remember being on another retreat with a, a number of the pastors when we were planning for the sermon series, and this was years ago. And I remember that I was having some problems with another one of the staff that I was working with, and I, and I wasn't handling it very well. And I remember that Lance took me out to go and have a conversation with me about it. And we took a walk around this kind of court that we were in where we were staying. And Lance was like digging into me. He was calling me out on stuff and he was correcting me on the ways I was thinking and the ways I was approaching stuff. But what I remember the most out of that time is not that he pinned me to the wall, but the way he did it. He did it with a gentleness. He did it with this element of control. And, and Paul tells us in Philippians 4, he says, let your gentleness be known to everyone because gentleness prompts unity. But look what he says is the third one. Be patient. Wait, I have to be humble, gentle, and patient? Come on. I can't do this. But we can. And he says that this patience is this steadfast, staying power. And it's bearing up under difficulty. But that difficulty he's talking about is with another person's behavior. And that's kind of hard when you have to bear up with another person's behavior and accept their faults. But check this. Accept their injuries and allow them worth and space. And it's a reminder that you cannot demand that everyone lives within your time frame and your efficiency. And, and, and so it, it's this ability that God gives us to hold our feelings in restraint. And it doesn't mean that you're waiting and waiting and going without complaint. It's about the capacity to put up with a delay for as long as it takes to not be hasty to move through a challenge. See, when we get around someone's behavior that we don't like, we just wanna get away from it. And we try to hurry away or hurry through the situation because we don't like conflict. And he's saying, no, part of it is going through the challenge so that you actually draw closer to that person. It's this cautious endurance that doesn't abandon hope. And, and it kind of reminds you, and I liked what uh, one of the ladies that leads our prayer team, Nicole, says, is that space and time are not bad. They're actually good sometimes when there's frustration and tension. And that we tend to always want to deal with things directly and not give space to work through. But we even know from Scripture that one of the reasons we're supposed to be patient is because our God is patient. That it tells us in, a, in, a, in a Exodus uh, chapter 34, verse six, that this is a quality of God, that he is slow to anger and abounding in love. And I love what that word is in the Hebrew because slow to anger is erik apaim, which is long in the nostrils. So it's this picture of having this very long nose and the nostrils were always, and I'm giving you the little nostril flare manually, right? That was always the symbol of anger in the ancient world. And it's saying that God is slow because he's long on the nose, that he doesn't get angry with us according to what we deserve. And so we want to do the same thing with others. We want to endure with other people's growth. Realizing that things and people change over time and watching the outcome come through God's long game of compassion and mercy. And, and patience is always informed by context and insight. The better you know a person, the better you know of their situation, the better you understand why they're acting. And it comes from leaning into communication and dialogue with the spirit. And again, patience prompts unity. But not only that, you need to do more. You need to bear with one another in love. Wait, so you have to be humble, gentle, patient, and bear one with one another in love. That's a lot. I'm done. Right? I, I, that's so much. But again, this leads to main, maintenance of the unity. And, and, and when you think about it, the enemy 
And our flesh would love for us to have an issue and to distance our relationship and connection because it's such an important thing to God's kingdom. And bearing with one another in love is such a key piece to all this. It's the bond that brings it all together because God has set love as the ground for us to walk on. Um, Jesus would say, and Paul would write all over, that the sum of the commandments is love. And in, and in Colossians 3.14, he'll say, love is the bond of perfection. And that is the love that rules among us because God has already forged the way in love. And so this is where we learn how to endure, again, one another and work through it because of relationship. That we're not indifferent to truth. We're not ignoring maybe something that someone did, but we know that there is something greater that's gained when we work it out because of an authentic relationship. And this is not just an emotion. This is not an ideal. It has to do with specific people and specific personalities. That when I say bearing with one another in love, you already have people that you're filling in the blank. Bear with blank in love. Don't say their names out loud. Don't type it on your phone. These are the people I'm bearing with. But there's people that we're thinking about and it's shaped over and over again by new encounters. It's shaped over and over again by different people and different personalities. And when you're bearing with one another in love, you're doing a lot of different things. You're taking initiative to enlarge your life world so there's more overlap. That you're going, I, I'm enlarging the way I do life and I think about life and I approach it so that you and I can be on the same page. It's, it's, it's forming a communicative competence where we're conversing on what's just and appropriate in our lives together and we're doing storytelling and we're accessing memory and we're listening to each other's honest story. Bearing with one, or, one another in love has to deal with empathy. And empathy means bracketing our own perceptions and our own emotions in an effort to enter into the world of another. That you're going, I'm setting how I feel and think aside for a moment so I can understand how you feel, how you think. And these are the things that help us to bear with one another in love. And bearing with one another prompts unity. Now this always makes me ask the question, are my responses, is the way I'm acting, is the what am I doing, is it facilitating unity or tearing it down? And this has to do with verbally and digitally, because lots of times our thumbs do just as much talking as our mouths. And I remember when we were doing our Fruit of the Spirit juiced class in the beginning of all this shelter in place, as we were going through the fruits of the spirit, this revelation came to me when you're accessing social media and seeing Christians talking to one another and talking to others and writing things and people saying things in frustration and anger and upset. And it helped me realize that yes, we have a freedom of speech, but as followers of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the spirit, it's much higher than our freedom. It's much higher than our freedom of speech. I know a lot of us go, no, I have the right to my opinion and I can say what I think and you can't, I understand that. But as followers of Jesus Christ, the fruit of the spirit living with this goal matters much, much more. And sadly, I don't always see gentleness and humility and bearing with one another in love and patience on what people are saying or posting. And I look at that and I understand there's background because there's so many people that have been hurt by someone who didn't walk with these elements of unity. And so we're always going, how am I supposed to work my way through this mess? 
Because what if I don't want to love people in the midst of the mess? What if I don't have a desire to be kind or gentle and I have no motivation, right? We live in a time right now where it's hard to get motivation to do anything, let alone live in unity with other people. It's not easy to serve others even on a good day. And in the midst of a mess, when harsh words have been spoken and thoughtless actions have occurred and sides have been taken, what are we supposed to do when biting and devouring one another is the easiest thing to do? And I don't, I don't like how scripture first addresses that because it first tells us you don't have the ability to love others as you ought to. You can't muster enough moral power to do it. It's only when we seek the Spirit's inexhaustible power that we are inspired to rely wholly on the Lord in the nitty-gritty details of our lives. I'm not talking about the coming to church and our worship or our devotional time. I'm talking about how we talk to our families, how we talk to our, the people in our jobs, how we talk to the people when we're out in public, all those other places. And let's go to verse 3. Remember what I said earlier, this is Paul's central insistence and encouragement for the whole chapter, that we make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. It doesn't need to be created. It's been produced by God already, but it has to be preserved and protected. It has to be realized and maintained. It has to be cultivated and cherished. And Paul says, when he's saying make every effort, he's literally saying take pain. Take pains, have initiative, and in a hurry to do it with all the full effort of your mind, your will, your strength, your attitude. Do we use our full effort and our whole person for unity? That's the question. Or do we end up redirecting it from my own personal desires and preferences? And he's gonna tell us that we need to maintain this unity, to preserve it, to guard it. And, and the best illustration, because I, I struggle with this one, what does it look like to maintain something? And the best illustration I could imagine was being in the midst of a 40 degree below zero tundra and it's freezing out and you're able to get a little fire started. And once you got that fire started, you are going to find anything that you can put on that fire to keep it going because you want to maintain the fire because it's the only thing that's going to keep you alive. So that's the type of maintaining that we have to do. We have to keep focusing and hold on to something so as not to give it up or to lose it. And it's lost when there's carelessness. It's lost when there's incomplete understanding of the value of what it is. And when we realize what the unity of the Lord is, we do not want to lose it. It's a unity that already embraces us because God has already made us one out of a humanity that's divided. This is what all of Ephesians chapter two was talking about. In God's oneness, he, had made, he has made us one and we live on the basis and the recognition of that unity because God has provided us the power to unite and to reconcile, to function by unity in diversity in the same way he does. And so like it or not, we are one with other people in Jesus. <laughs> We do not have Jesus to ourselves. We cannot be mature by ourselves. What we do in relation to each other must grow out of an understanding of unity and be geared towards preserving, maintaining, guarding that unity. God has chosen to grace other people so that they can contribute to us and us to them. But you're probably thinking what I'm thinking. Well, what is unity? Remember we talked about it in the very beginning? Paul's only going to use this term, tenotis in the Greek, twice in the entire New Testament. And the two times he uses it is here in Ephesians 4. 
So he wants us to hear a very specific message about what this unity is. And it's not a spirit of unity which makes general unity the focal point, like friendliness or we're all in the social grouping, but it's a unity of the spirit. There's a big difference. It's a unity of the spirit. It's God's unity that is our common end. Just as there's oneness in God between Father, Son, and Spirit, we wanna function in that same unity. So it's not general unity at all costs, but it's a unity that comes from a shared faith and a shared knowledge in Christ. Because what you're gonna find is as you get to, the, to chapter four, verse 13, he's gonna say, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God that we all have a common conviction about Jesus, a common confidence, a common care for each other. But he's gonna say, we maintain the unity of the spirit, but it's in something. It's in the bond of peace. What some people will call it is the shalom glue, right? This is the peace that bonds us together, that links us together, that we become one in the same way that the Father is one, even though we're all gifted differently even though God's using us with different stories in different parts of our lives. I like to call it the shalom zipper though. And the reason why is because shalom glue doesn't make a sound, right? I mean, you can go, but a shalom zipper, when all the pieces are coming together, like you're, you're zipping up a jacket, you know how you can hear it? Zip, zip. And I think when we function in this bond of peace, people hear it, people see it. They see people coming together and they see that it's to the benefit of everyone that's in that unity, but more than anything, it's to God's glory. They go, man, there's something about the God that these people all share that demonstrates a maturity. And so God equips us to maintain that shalom glue, that shalom zipper, and to be agents of peace and reconciliation. And we're gonna see that we can live into that unity and we're able to confess it, which is what Pastor Lance is gonna talk about next week. So let me give you in 45 seconds, what does it mean to maintain unity? So I have seven things I'm gonna say and I'm gonna say them really quick. So if you try to write them down, you are a fast writer, but just wait for the notes to come out. Number one, we have to be alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. Number two, we have to cultivate curiosity over assumption. Number three, we need to have an awareness of a common bond and remember and express our shared values, our shared experiences, and our common identity more than our differences. Number four, we need to maintain relational warmth and sincere friendships. Number five, we need to have mutual accountability and mutual investment. I need to hold you to account. You need to hold me to account. I need to invest in you. You need to invest in me. Number six, we need to be united by a sense of mission, a sense that all that we are doing, every little part plays into the kingdom of God and it's all being advanced in truth and love. We need to have that interdependence where our arms are linked together for the sake of Jesus Christ. And when we address the problems together, things start working unto his glory. And number seven, and Lance talked about this last week, we need to be united in our message. Because when we're united in our message, a massive movement can happen across this world. And you're gonna see that Paul's gonna continue to describe what elements of unity will look like and the challenges that will still remain for unity because it's not gonna be easy. 
And Paul knows that, and he's going to talk about that as we keep moving through chapter four. But let me finish with this last piece. Dwight L. Moody, famous uh, Christian writer, pastor, preacher, somebody came up to him and said, are you filled with the Spirit? And Dwight L. Moody responded, and he said, yes, yes, I am, but I leak. And, And I love his humility in that statement because what he's saying is, God has filled me. God has, God has established this unity and we sit in a time where we can be rekindled and refilled. That's always happening. Where we walk distinctively, living in balance with what God has called us to do. All those wonderful things he said we are in Jesus. That we are reformed and refocused as we live humbly and gently and patiently and we endure with one another in love. And I think there's a lot of us that we need to go and we need to confess some things to one another. We need to apologize. We need to reconcile with relationships that have been stained. And we need to zealously, diligently maintain and guard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So that people hear and see the zip, the shalom zipper. So let me pray for you, and then let's go live this out in the week. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for everything that you've done for us and everything that you are. And God, I pray that you would give us that supernatural spiritual power, Lord, to live in this unity, to walk in a a worthy manner, in a worthy lifestyle, according to the calling that you have given us, Lord, that we would balance those beams. God, we pray in the power of your Holy Spirit that you would show us how to be humble, how to be gentle, how to be patient, how to bear with one another in love. And Lord, may we maintain what you've already started. And Lord, may that bless you, glorify you, may it worship you, and may it inspire and draw others towards your kingdom and your gospel. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.